Hello, this is Careers Talk and I'm Kerry Eustace. So, you've got the degree. Yep. Possibly even got the handsome hooded sweatshirt to prove it. Hmm, maybe. You've done the work experience? Uh-huh. But are you really ready to enter the graduate job market? Um... Well, stick with us because today's guest is the leading graduate careers advisor and author, Dr. Paul Redmond, and he is going to reveal his magic formula for successful graduate job seeking. But to start, we're talking graduates, call centres and The Onion in this week's news. I am, as always, joined by Harriet Minter and Ali White. Hiya. Hello. Hello. You both all right? Great, thanks. Good. Good. Um, Harriet? Call centres? Uh, yes, so I'm going to start with call centres, which is um, a report conducted by Hayes Recruitment and the top 50 call centres for customer service, which has found that 35% of all call workers are now actually have a degree, which is a 10% increase on last year. And the report basically says that this is a sign of how bad the graduate recruitment market is and how difficult it is for young graduates to find jobs without having to take call centre jobs. Um given that it's put together by the top 50 call centres for customer service. It doesn't seem very pro call centres as a career, I have to say. Um, But I actually thought, although it isn't great, and I know when you do your degree, it's not in the brochure that you're going to end up working for a BT call centre. But there are some positives that people can take out of it. And actually, I'm a real believer that having a job is better than not having a job at all. Um, So you've got to think that actually, if you're working in a call centre, there's going to be some great pluses, such as training. So they generally provide really excellent training. So you're going to learn a lot, obviously, about customer service. But you're also going to learn possibly about the legal issues surrounding the area that you're working in. So um, customer sales, what rights the customers have, what the legal position of the company is if anybody calls in. You're also going to learn how to deal with difficult people, which is a life skill that will go through your employment. (laughs) Um, And actually, I think that if I was to see that on somebody's CV, I would know that at least they were very hardworking and were able to put up with perhaps not the greatest jobs in order to push their career forward. So although this survey has come out as quite a bad thing, I want to say that if you are thinking, oh God, my only career option is in a call centre, don't think that means it. that's your only career option for the rest of your life. There is lots that you can get out of it. I, I completely agree. And, you know, ever the eternal optimist, I think this is going to have a knock on effect in sort of years to come. So all these graduates are going to be equipped with these quite valuable skills for employers. So the situation now where employers are saying that graduates don't always come to them sort of work ready or, you know, familiar with the working environment. If you did spend that time in a call centre, you're going to pick up all those skills that Harriet mentioned. And as long as you, you know, um, intelligently present them on your next applications, I think it's actually going to be a really good thing. Well, there's a post on the forums this week about someone working in a call centre who's got a chance of promotion but they're kind of deliberating whether they should give up all the flexibility because they've actually got some really good terms and conditions where they can work weekends to have time off in the week and you know sort of pick and choose their hours even and she's almost saying oh I know I should go for the promotion but I really enjoy that flexibility so it's a really interesting dilemma and sounds like there's definitely opportunities within these call centres. And Julian is addressing that query later on in the show. <laughs> oh fantastic. <laughs> Ali, what's your story? Excellent. I've got um, news about Microsoft that yesterday launched the second phase of its Britain's Works programme. And it's a plan to get half a million people in employment by 2012. So not a small figure there. In the past year, Microsoft said that it's given more than 100,000 people, um, you know, that sort of helped into these programmes. And in the next 12 months, it aims to give another 100,000 young people, sort of aged around 16 to 24, the opportunity to kickstart their careers. And what it is, is new opportunities uh, 
sort of created through a combination of work experience placements run by Microsoft, but also its partners and customers. Um, and so alongside what they call 450,000 training vouchers. And these are um, vouchers that can actually be exchanged for Microsoft e-learning courses and Microsoft certifica certification exams, sorry. And then 3,000 new IT apprenticeships over, three, over the three-year program. And the campaign also includes a partnership with LinkedIn where free advice and mentoring opportunities can be accessed by people taking part. But it's, I think it's really interesting because what Microsoft is doing is um, sort of encouraging its partner businesses across the UK, including 30,000 IT companies, to join in this initiative and offer apprenticeships and work experience. So as well as the opportunities with Microsoft, the program really seems to be sort of outreaching all these different companies. And, you know, I think it sounds fantastic opportunity for a lot of people, really. Do you know what this sounds like to me as well? It's like the private sector digital version of the Future Jobs Fund almost. Mm. It's sort of picking up where the Future Jobs Fund, which was offering sort of apprenticeships and work experience in sort of arts and other public sector organisations. So I think this is an opportunity that a lot of people are going to value now that, that the Future Jobs Fund has, um, has been culled slightly. They seem to be picking up on these difficult age groups as well, so 16 to 24-year-olds. So say if you've come out of school and you haven't quite got the qualifications that are going to lead you on to university and everything, it seems like you're also going to be included in the scheme as well as you know other people that might have other opportunities. So it does seem quite good. All right, um, my story, if you want to call it a story, I have, as always, been lurking around Twitter looking for interesting <laughs> things that are going on in the world of job seeking. Working hard this week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this was just a bit of downtime. I happened to discover something very interesting. Um, and this is... Um, from The Onion, which is a satirical news site in America. And um, for anybody who ha hasn't had the joy of uh, seeing any of their headlines, one of its recent stories was uh, a poll that one in five Americans believe Obama is a cactus. <laughs> um, so it's not always entirely serious. And, and I've got some of its own job-seeking tips, and we're going to hear producer Kate read a few of them now. Be aggressive. <laughs> Don't be afraid to call a potential employer every few hours and say, is there an opening yet? How about now? How about now? Now? Make sure your resume is free of spelling and grammatical errors, grease stains, crumbs, blood spatters, and bits of hair and gristle. If, during an interview, you sense that they have detected one or more of the falsehoods in your resume, throw a smoke bomb on the floor and escape in the ensuing confusion. When a job application asks you to list reasons you left previous job, make it clear you were not at fault. Right, boss was total Nazi. <laughs> when writing a cover letter to a prospective employer, stress that although you used to admire their company, they totally suck now, but that if they hire you, you can help make them great again. That will definitely work. <laughs> Yeah, so all these were going around Twitter and some people actually went on to devise their own uh, tips. So Jake Draper tweeted, write a false address, name and telephone number on applications. It helps because you won't have to fear rejection then. Oh, <laughs> um, so yeah, I know these tips are entirely ridiculous, but I think there's actually something interesting in there for, you know, the obvious things that they're pointing out and you can kind of reflect. And if you can see any of your own behaviour in any of those, <laughs> clearly you have to stop. But this sort of like, <laughs> state of the obvious. 
obvious. So this actually led me to go on and try and look for genuine advice on Twitter. And some of it is still quite funny, but really useful. Like Andy Clee, who's got a feed called Job Hunting Tips, says... Anyone who puts award-winning as the first two words of their job title on LinkedIn is a dork, <laughs> unless you won a Nobel or an Oscar. And you know, it's funny, but it's actually got a good point. You know, yeah. let's be realistic about who we are and what we can do. And and what about you guys? Have you seen any good tips around this week? Um, I saw one on my Q and A, and it's a bit—it's not as snappy as that. But I thought it was really interesting because a lot of people say they've got transferable skills, but you know what are they? So one of our um, panelists said, you know, regardless of what degree you do, say you've got the ability to read a text with the eye to isolating the argument and evaluating it, which sounds still a bit, you know, complicated. But when you think what it can transfer to, like in journalism, you're reading reports and trying to pick out the key point, and in law, I understand that's a similar kind of thing, and the civil service even, and management consultancy. So I think. His point was, you know, think past saying, I've got a degree in philosophy, I'm great and I've got lots of transferable skills and actually isolate what your skills are. I haven't heard one, but I was reminded of something that I did from those onion tips when (laughs) (laughs) um, many years ago I was quite desperate for a job and I'd applied for one which I thought I was absolutely perfect for and I couldn't understand why I hadn't heard anything back from them because I'd emailed them my CV. So I thought I would call them and just see whether they'd received it. So I called them and they weren't there, so I left a voicemail, and then I put the phone down, and then I remembered that at the end of the voicemail, I hadn't left a number they could contact me on. And if they hadn't received it, how were they going to get hold of me? Because they didn't have my email address, (laughs) and they didn't have my number. So then I called them back and left another voicemail saying, Hi, this is Harriet Mint. I just left you a voicemail, but I actually forgot to leave my number, so here it is. Put it down. And then I thought, clearly they now think I'm a nutter because I've just left them two voicemails. So I picked up the phone and left them another voicemail saying sorry don't mean to keep harassing you um just wanted to check that you have received it <laughs> apologies harriet oh. but the down. i never heard from them oh, oh. i'm so glad it ended there yeah yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. um, yeah so i think sometimes it's best just to say nothing Now, in this week's Dear Julian, Creative Director at Bauer, Julian Lindley has some advice for someone who can't decide whether it's worth swapping lovely, flexible hours for a promotion. Hello, this is Julian Lindley, and this week we've got a career dilemma. Bit of a departure, because usually we're talking about people trying to get their foot on the career ladder, but this is someone who's already in a job. This is what Macadiz has to say. I'm currently working in a call centre dealing with a high volume of calls that are on the whole repetitive and unrewarding. Salary is about average for this type of work. The one great advantage of this job is that it operates an annualised hour system. So we are free within the employer's reasonable requirements to schedule our own hours and days off as we need. The dilemma is that there is a promotion in the offing that I stand quite a good chance of securing. The position would be a proper step up the career ladder to a much more recognised and valuable level of job and the salary would be considerably better. But the downside is no annualised hours, so no freedom to do the things I love doing in my life at present. I'm thinking this could be a very tough choice to be faced with and if I don't resolve these issues before the upcoming interviews I fear I may shoot myself in the foot and won't be offered the job at all. So, Macadies, I think the interesting thing I noticed straight away in your letter is that you start off on the negatives. You know, you clearly don't seem to like the job that you're doing, or it certainly doesn't seem to be what you you want to be doing with your life. I would try and take a step back now and think, well, what is it that I wanted to do before I got into this job? 
and either make the choice that you're going to face the hardships now to push yourself on to try and work in an area that you do want to work in that you know that is more rewarding because one of the first things that you say is the job is on the whole unrewarding and very repetitive or that you just make the decision that you know this is my life and this is what I'm going to do with it and then go for it you know because as you say you stand a good job of getting the promotion and getting a higher salary and if that's what you choose to do with your life then you absolutely would be holding yourself back by not going for it but it sounds to me as if this is something you don't want to do and I think the further you get into this the more difficult it's going to be to leave it in the future it's very hard to walk away from a high salaried job it's very hard to walk away from a job with responsibility to then have to kind of step back down the career ladder and be managed by someone instead of being manager again it's really tough when I first left university I got a job really quickly managing a cafe in North London and I absolutely loved it. It's very social, was going out all the time, fantastic group of people that I was working with. And you know, unlike you, McAdee, I really loved it. But I could easily have continued on in doing that for the rest of my life because I was having fun. But I there was an itch and an ambition inside me that I decided to listen to instead. And as painful as it was, I kind of had to sideline what I was doing and I took a step backwards then to just go down to doing regular waiting shifts rather than being a manager so that I had more time to dedicate to my journalism career which is kind of what I wanted to do and then similarly later on in my career uh, when I was deputy editor of Heat I mean you know cripes that was like one of the best jobs that anyone could ever hope to have I could have stayed at Heat forever but the thing is I knew that I wouldn't be satisfied if you know in five or six years time well how would I be feeling at that point in my career and I'd probably feel like I'd missed the boat if I hadn't actually taken a gear shift and gone on to do other things and ultimately the funny thing is that I ended up back at Heat but as the editor so you know I'm not sure that that would have happened had I stayed there so it's really important I think to always look to the future and think about your ambitions and where it is you want to be and think strategically about how you're going to get there the problem I think with you McAdee at the moment is you sound like you're doing a job that you don't really want to do and you're just seeing it as a way to earn money and pass the time that's absolutely fine if your personal life and you know your kind of life outside of your career is what you want to focus on however I think the very fact that you're writing in to me and the fact that you're listening to this suggests that you've got ambitions outside of what you're doing so I would say bite the bullet now and just focus on what it is you want to do and get on with it Right, as Ali has only just got back from a little holiday swanning around Venice, opposed to swanning around our forums, Harriet is bringing us the highlights this week from her Q&A on how to get a pupillage. Um, but first, for the non-legal savvy among us, mainly me, um, what is a pupillage? A pupillage is what trainee barristers have to get in order to... It's their training period, basically. And it is exceptionally competitive. Um... And the first thing that absolutely everyone on my Q&A pointed out is that there are a very small number of pupillages and they are getting smaller every year and they're probably not going to start increasing anytime soon. So you have to be really, really sure that you want to do it. And so one of the really horrifying stats is that there are 2,000 people who start the kind of academic training for this every year. And last year there were only 400 pupillage places available at the end of it. And then you're competing also with all the people who did their academic training the year before and the year before and so forth. So you have to be really, really sure that it's what you want to do before you invest the time and the money in it. 
if you do want to do it and you do invest the time and the money, um, they also suggested to make sure you contact your inns of court. To be a barrister, everyone has to belong to an inn of court. There are four of them. And they're sort of almost like your little union that look after you. And they help with providing scholarships and funding and also training, which could be really useful. On the training point, um, we had a lot of questions from people who were who had been studying part-time and now trying to get a pupillage while still working full-time, um, saying they hadn't been able to kind of build up as much experience as pe- people, people who'd been studying. And so um, one of the things they came up with was mooting. If you know what mooting is? Mooting is what young <laughs> barrister students have to do where they have mock trials and they pretend to be real barristers. And this Amazing. is called mooting. I don't know why it's called mooting. Mm-hmm. That's a great word. I'm going to keep saying it, mooting. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so um, it's quite hard to fit in your mooting if you're also working full time. So one of our um, panellists suggested contacting your inn of court and seeing whether they run anything called um, the fast mooting debates, whereby somebody else does all the preparation work for you and you just have to turn up, read it as quickly as you can and stand up on your feet and pretend to be in this court case. And they also suggested if your inns of court aren't running that, go to them and say, could we start it? Could I be involved in starting this society? Will you give me any money and help towards it? That way you get two things on your CV. You get your mooting and you get involvement in your inn of court, which looks really, really good to barristers. And um, finally, one of the last tips they gave is is when you do get your pupillage, there are some very specific things to do. One is do not wear a brown suit. I don't know why, but apparently this does not go down well. Barristers should be dressed in either pinstripes or a dark blue suit. Brown, green, red, if that's your colour. None of these are going to look good in court, so don't do it. Um, Make sure you're on time. And always leave more time than you think it's going to take you to complete a task. So when you're given something to do, make sure you don't say, oh yeah, I can do that in an hour. Say, no, I can do it in two hours. Because even if it only takes you an hour, you've then got another hour to perfect it and make it better. Now, if only there was a formula that you could follow to find a graduate job. E equals MC. Um, E equals MC. Um, okay, okay, no. E equals MC. Um, um, okay, okay, no. Work experience plus degree equals unemployment. Hmm, maybe. Unpaid internship plus masters times family in the industry equals dream job. Yeah, it must, I think it is it. It must be it. It must be X at the end. No? GCSE squared to the power of an apprenticeship equals trade for life. D over DX times EX equals X. No. No? No. Um, e equals MC squared. Yes. 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 E equals MC squared. Christ, I didn't understand any of that. Well, if the title of our guest's latest book is anything to go by, maybe there is, if not an actual magic formula, then at least a series of basic steps university leavers really should be thinking about before whizzing off all those application forms. 
On the phone from Liverpool now, I have Dr Paul Redmond, who's Head of Careers and the Employability Service at the University of Liverpool and author of The Graduate Jobs Formula. And he's going to tell us how to solve an equation to find X when X is your dream job. Um, Hello, Paul. Hi. (laughs) Um, First, I wanted to ask you, you've had, your city's had an influx of enthusiastic fresh faces this week. Um, But enough about the Lib Deb conference. You've been kept busy with your new students, haven't you? What's going on with them? You've seen quite a few, I I understand. Yes, it's been quite a week. Over the course of the week, I've spoken to around 4,500 new first years, not not one after another, <laughs> um, but in, in large lecture theatres. Um, so they're new to the city, they're from all around the world, and uh, they're very enthusiastic and optimistic. Uh, despite the, the um, stories about the recession and the credit crunch, they're very optimistic about the future. That's interesting, because I was going to ask you if they had any concerns about their futures, but they're mainly looking on the bright side then. Yes, and I think they also see themselves as the the lucky few, um, considering how many students have applied to university this year and haven't been successful because mm-hmm. of the shortage yeah. of places. Um, so, so they're very confident and, um, and in a celebratory mood, particularly in Freshers' Week. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. That's understandable. Um, poor Liverpool, but, you know. Um, <laughs> right, cracking on. So in your book, The Graduate Job Formula, you talk about job-seeking AD, and that's after the downturn. And I mean, we all know that competition is tougher now and jobs are scarce, but in what other ways has the market changed, do you think? Well, I think um, AD, after the downturn, hmm. Um, there's been quite a big shift in the graduate job market in a number of ways. First of all, the idea of the war for talent, this idea that, that arose in the early 90s, has really caught on. And many big companies now are, are fighting this war for talent with um, reduced resources since the credit crunch. Their budgets to uh, recruit graduates have been cut, in some cases, quite drastically. So we're seeing that the pressure um, to recruit the best graduates is really changing the way organisations approach the job market. I talk in the book about the deployment of weapons of mass rejection. Um, so so <laughs> companies are using these to, to weed out graduate applicants as early as possible, often via the internet. But we're also noticing that employers are targeting institutions far more um, aggressively than they have done in the past. Mm. So issues about where you study um, come into play far more importantly now than they did BC uh, before the crunch. <laughs> So tell me a bit more about these weapons of mass rejection. I mean, what sort of techniques are they using that graduates should maybe be aware of? Well, we've noticed in particular the use of online applications. Uh, around 8 out of 10 every, of all graduate recruiters now recruits via the internet. Um, and, and that allows employers to reject applications that aren't of a very high standard really quickly. Mm. Um, we also noticed that, that psychometric tests, cognitive tests, personality tests are now far more, are far more common. Um, and again, people are having to do these online. You've got to pass those before you even get to an interview. If you get an interview, the chances are the first interview will be a telephone interview, some of which take place on Saturday mornings, by the way. Um, and there's nothing like a Saturday morning interview to <laughs> yeah. test your communication skills. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we've, we've also noticed that assessment centres are far more important now. Mm. Uh, and these can last for anything between half a day and two full days. And often it's a mixture of assessments uh, that test not just your uh, graduate skills, but also your your um, ability to fit in, to make small talk, to, to make presentations. So, so suddenly the market has become far more competitive uh, and complicated than ever before. So let's talk about preparation for those sort of um, tests then. I mean, how important is it for graduates to be prepared? And, you know, if they're unprepared, what are they risking? I think if you're unprepared, um, there's a real chance that... that that you will miss the the one opportunity to to impress employers. 
And don't forget, you could have a great degree. You could academically, you could be in excellent condition. Uh, but if you haven't prepared, the chances are now, I, th I think, after the downturn, that you won't get another opportunity with certain organisations. With quite a few graduate recruiters, if you're rejected, uh, you can't reapply that year. So uh, the stakes have, have been raised. So preparation is essential, um, along with high quality applications. When I've been speaking to employers, the things that really annoy them still uh, are bad spelling, bad grammar, and lack of knowledge about organizations. I'm afraid for these graduates today, there's no longer an excuse not to be well prepared in terms of doing research on organizations. The internet has ruined that excuse. Hmm. Um, so organizations expect you to be an expert on them even before you get to the interview. Um, you've touched on my next question a little bit, but can you tell us what the ideal level of preparation is? So could you describe maybe a candidate who, who'd be really attractive to employers because they prepared really well and then maybe one that hasn't adopted the right approach? Well, talking to um, graduates this summer, we've been running a series of boot camps for graduates. And you can see really graduates who have prepared because they come along, um, they've done their homework on the organisation. They can tell you everything from its share price to its chief executive. Um, they've also looked at the culture of the organisation, so they know what it takes to fit in, uh, not just formally, but informally. Often they've spoken to people who've been in the organisation, and they've, they've usually done some form of information interview. Um, I, again, I talk about that in the book, but that's when you go along to speak to someone who's in an organisation, ask them for 20 minutes uh, of their time, and, and find out a bit more information that you would normally get through official uh, channels. So, so you can often tell these people quite easily in terms of the confidence that stands out. In terms of lack of preparation, again, unfortunately, you know, graduates um, who haven't prepared fully often fail at the first hurdle. So their application forms can be e-rejected within hours of them submitting them. And again, often it's because they've not done their homework on the organisation. They don't know what the company's objectives and priorities are. And it just shows it stands out. So would that almost be a checklist then for, for graduates to make sure they understand a company, um, to make sure they've done that research? I mean, could you give us some more things if there was a list that you had to have that you have to go through before you apply? Well, I would say, first of all, speak to your university career service. Um, even if you've graduated, career services have a responsibility uh, for looking after their graduates beyond university life. So, so find out what your university career service is offering. Many of our career services now offer internships for graduates as we do in Liverpool. So make sure that you've made full access of those. Um, second, look at the careers schedule that's taking place for this academic year. Um, closing dates for graduate jobs this year are ridiculously early. So many companies will close their books by November um, and that's for jobs starting next year. So make sure that you know what's happening in terms of the schedule. Um, the third factor that I would talk about is get your finances in order. Uh, we, we put a great deal of emphasis on graduates to make sure that their finances are, are as managed as possible. And in particular, what we've been saying is access not ownership. Um, don't buy things that you don't need to buy. Keep your, your finances flexible uh, because if you're able to move around, it obviously increases your employability. Um, focus on quality, not quantity. So a few well-constructed applications are always better than a scattergun effect. Look at contacts, look at how you can make contacts with the people in different organisations. Um, and in particular, look at not just the big name companies, but also the smaller, medium sized enterprises, which often don't have the same profile in universities. And my final tip, I think, on the checklist is always have a plan B. You know, always have something uh, to fall back on if plan A doesn't work out straight away. 
So almost like an alternative career plan, I guess, maybe a different sector or a different sort of role? Yeah, I think so. Um, the challenge for today's graduates, Generation Y, is, is that many of them will be working in jobs which haven't been invented yet uh, for organisations that don't trade. So in a sense, having a plan B can often be quite a good way of, of um, leading you to plan A um, over the next couple of years. Okay, I wanted to ask you a bit about um, whether you thought graduates are hesitant to start looking for jobs currently because of the discouraging news stories that you talked about earlier about around volume of applicants. Um, do you think there's any truth in that? I think, um, again, this generation of graduates have really had their confidence shaken by the credit crunch. I think some of the stories that we hear about the graduate job market have, in, in a sense, they, they've radiated outwards and and many of the stories are, are questioning the value of university education, um, which I think is too extreme. You know, um, employers are still looking to recruit graduates and they place a great deal of importance on graduates. Um, so I think I think the, the message is for this cohort of graduates is to keep your nerve, um, but also follow this formula. You know, it's, it's employability, it's qualifications, experience and contacts. I think that's the crucial message. Well, I was going to ask you, actually, um, we might have overstated it a little bit, but, you know, what is the, the formula that maybe you should be applying? Well, I, I was always intrigued because there's so much um, written about employability for graduates. Uh, it's quite difficult to condense it. So in my, my lectures to um, students, I, I've tried to condense it in a, in a formula, which is basically the, the, the basis for the book. And, and what I'm saying really is employability um, calls for a, a mixture of factors, qualifications, work experience and um, strategies so the knowledge of how to carry out interviews and assessment centers um, and but most of all contacts I think that's a key area that we, we understate uh, very often so, so I, I summarize it as E equals Q plus WE uh, plus S multiplied by C which is sort of uh, impressively Einstein's yeah I was going to say so, he'd be really proud of that yeah and, and I've got an English degree as well so I'm quite <laughs> pleased with, with that but yeah. I think it's it sums up the message I think in terms of what graduates need to do that was great Paul thanks very much for the fascinating formula indeed Einstein would be proud and um, speak to you again soon thank you inspired by the question that Julian addressed earlier on flexible working this week's job chart has a part-time feel Charlie Vincent from Guardian Jobs is here now to help Ali reveal the top 10. Kicking off the countdown at 10, it's a copywriter from Creative People. At 9, Greenwich Community College is looking for a tutor in casino operations. In at 8, it's a legal PA with Italian from Cavendish Personnel. 40s people are looking for an administrator at 7. While at six, it's a support coordinator with Circle Anglia. We're into the top five with a leisure and well-being worker from the Alzheimer's Society. And it's a customer service partner for the Metropolitan Housing Partnership at four. At three, Oxford Open Learning are looking for a home study tutor. And one from the top at two, it's a fundraiser from Langton. But this week's numero uno is a <laughs> membership officer with Charitas. <laughs> Okay, before we go, here's what we've got coming up on the site next week. Okay, on Wednesday the 29th, we have Working for a Top Graduate Employer to tie in with the launch of the Guardian UK 300. Thursday the 30th, we have Educational Roles Beyond Teaching. And rounding up the week, on the 1st of October, we have Entry Level Roles in PR. Right, that's everything for this week. There's just time to thank our guests, and I'll hope you'll agree that Dr Paul Redmond, plus Charlie Vincent from Guardian Jobs, 
times Harriet Minter to the power of Ali White plus me, Kerry Eustace, divided by producer Kate Taylor equals a thoroughly brilliant careers talk. Until next week, goodbye. Yay! <laughs> thank you, thanks. <laughs> I know, it's an achievement for me.